Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. The decades-old boundary dispute between India and China is back in the news. This time against the backdrop of a global pandemic. Soldiers of the Indian Army and the Chinese People's Liberation Army are currently in a tense standoff along the line of actual control. The Sino-Indian face-off is taking place at a time when China is caught up in a series of troubled fronts with the United States, with Australia, with Taiwan and with Hong Kong. As we try to understand the origins of the border standoff and the prospects for de-escalation of the crisis, it is important to place it in the broader geopolitical context in which China is currently operating. To discuss the origins and nature of the current crisis as well as its potential impact on Sino-Indian, Sino-American and Indian-American ties, we have with us today Dr. Ashley Tellis. Ashley is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Mothership where he holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs. His work specializes on international security and U.S. foreign and defense policy, with a special focus on Asia and the Indian subcontinent. Ashley's extensive academic engagements include his position with the U.S. government, including his close involvement in the negotiations of the U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Agreement. Ashley, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Srinath. I hope all of you are well. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Ashley. We've been following your writings on the current standoff between India and China. And I really want to start by talking a little bit about that before we broaden out to the bigger, wider geopolitical context, really. You know, I was just wondering if you could begin by giving us a sense uh, of what you think are China's motivations and intentions behind what seems to be a significantly more scaled up intrusion even beyond their own conception of where the line of actual control lies. Uh, what is different and what is driving this behavior? So I think this is obviously a complex issue and we are in the realm of interpretation because the Chinese have you know, not uh, been kind enough to sort of let us know what their motivations are. But I was struck by the fact that soon after the Indian decision to change the status of JNK uh, was made in August, uh, the Chinese were extremely agitated by that decision. And what I found interesting was not just the agitation, because in some ways you could expect that, but, uh, but the reasoning behind their agitation. And the reasoning, as I understood it, was their belief that the government of India had made this decision in order to signal uh, a return of Indian claims uh, to territories that it owned but did not possess. So they were reading the 370 decision almost as if India was signaling uh, an initiation of revanchism. It's not an interpretation I shared, and with the many Chinese that I spoke to since that time, I uh, tried to indicate that this was driven more by domestic considerations uh, than any international considerations, and certainly not the international considerations of sort of securing more territory or securing territory that India 
uh, it did not control. But I was struck by the fact that that seemed to have lodged in Chinese consciousness. Now, I say that only because I think that was a background condition. Um, the Chinese, in my reading, have always wanted uh, to claim the entirety of the Aksai Chin Plateau as Chinese territory. It's, in fact, fascinating to see Chinese maps of India, uh, which are prepared for domestic audiences. And those maps indicate all of Aksai Chin. There's no disputed territory or any sort of sophistication or subtlety about the boundaries. And so I think, you know, when you take into account the fact that the Chinese were concerned about what they saw as this preemptive effort by India to secure territory, uh, their concerns about uh, Indian order infrastructure modernization, uh, and of course, just the opportunities allowed by changing weather, uh, they decided to uh, make a play and uh, move uh, into territories that they had previously patrolled, but never really occupied. So there are varying factors that went into the making of this decision. Uh, what I think one can say with confidence is that uh, they decided that this time was a good enough time to send the message that they were going to protect their equities. And they did so in, as you point out, a dramatically different way from what they have done in the past. And they have now pushed, put the onus on India uh, to accept the status quo or to push them out uh, at potentially great cost. And to my mind, at least that is of a part with what China has done elsewhere in the world, which is um, salami slice, secure marginal pieces of territory and confront, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the other state uh, with the onus of having to push them out or accept the new reality. And I think your interpretation would suggest that, you know, in some ways, the trigger is their concern over the sort of internal change of constitutional status as far as uh, Jammu and Kashmir is concerned, is I think quite spot on, because I, I can think of at least two kind of points which actually fortify what you're saying. One is, you know, there have been newspaper reporting of the numbers of incursions over the last three years. And what we see is there is a very significant spike in the last year in the Ladakh sector, uh, whereas usually it's the Arunachal Pradesh sector where much patrolling activity, et cetera, happens, right? So, so that, that pattern, there is a clear shift which has happened. So I think, I think that that definitely suggests that there is a connection to what you're saying. Also, I think there's a bit of a historical, uh, you know, parallel to this kind of behavior on the part of the Chinese. I mean, if we recall uh, back in the 1980s when India had changed the status of Arunachal Pradesh and that had been upgraded from a union territory to a state, that's when the Chinese sort of staged the Somdurongchu incident, which again was a very long drawn out confrontation, right? I mean, it took almost seven years before uh, you know, the Chinese actually pulled out of that area. So it, it, it does seem to me that, you know, you, you might be onto something quite important, even though, as you say, we cannot know what is going on in the minds of the Chinese village. I share that. I share that judgment completely. I always have the Arunachal Pradesh uh, transition at the back of my mind when I think about this. But uh, I think one of the things that I found interesting was the Chinese tried to uh, signal to India their discomfort through the extraordinary efforts they made at taking the Indian decision to international bodies. Uh, 
Um, it, it's an interesting point of speculation whether China would have behaved differently on the ground if it had succeeded in those diplomatic efforts. Now, for better or for worse, uh, for China, those diplomatic efforts didn't succeed. Um, and so I'm, I wonder whether the failure of those diplomatic efforts then led them uh, to simply change the ground reality uh, as a way of signaling to India their extreme discomfort. That sounds very plausible to me as well. And what about options as far as India has? Because as you said, you know, in some ways, the Chinese have done the smart thing, which is they have made the first move and put the onus of any further escalation onto India. And, uh, you know, obviously, as the weaker of the two sides, uh, India will have to think very hard about any steps that it takes uh, which might lead to any kind of an uh, escalation of this particular standoff. And while there have been talks and you know various other kinds of diplomatic efforts, it's it's not very clear that anything has borne fruit yet. And it's not even very clear that the Chinese are particularly talking about the kinds of issues that are concerning Indians about the new change in status quo. So what do you think are the viable set of options that India has really in, time, in, in, in at least trying to get back to something which resembles status quo ante? So there are two broad sets of issues here. What can India do to correct uh, the physical uh, changes that have now occurred on the ground? And that is what one might think of as the tactical problem. And then, of course, there's the second issue, which is a strategic problem, which is what does India need to do to deal with the China that may potentially persist with these kinds of behaviors in the future? So let's start with the first. I think on the tactical question of what can China, what can India do uh, to correct uh, the changes that have occurred on the ground, I think that India's choices are very limited. Um, India is obviously trying to negotiate both at the military level in terms of the flag officers conferences and at the political level, uh, a restoration of the status quo ante. I haven't seen the kind of withdrawals that I read about in the Indian press. Uh, the news reports that seem to suggest that the Chinese have been withdrawing. I don't see that at all uh, at the Washington end, which leads me to believe that the Chinese are here to stay and, you know, short of war are unlikely to pull out. I hope the talks bear fruit, uh, but if they do, it will be only because the Chinese fear that India might do something dramatic at the strategic level that would be far more costly uh, for them compared to the marginal gains they've made at the tactical level. Uh, at the moment, there's no evidence that China thinks that that is a realistic possibility. And so they, I think, have reconcile themselves to the fact that India will talk, they will talk, but there will be no change on the ground. India may proceed to build up its forces and sort of engage in blocking actions, uh, but that's not going to change the status quo either. It'll be interesting to see whether India is willing to, you know, go out and do to China what China did to India, uh, as India did at Chumar in response to Depsa which is go out and claim, you know, salience of Chinese territory and occupy it and then use that as a negotiating uh, chip 
to force some sort of a withdrawal from China in Galwan and Hot Springs and in Pangongso. I don't know what India is planning to do as a alternative to the current strategy of simply talking. But my assessment of just uh, the possibilities at the tactical level uh, is that China holds the cards. Uh, they are unlikely to withdraw uh, unless India is willing to threaten them with costs. And those costs can be either, you know, symmetrical occupations elsewhere or make some big decisions at the strategic level that would be costly to China and would sort of suggest that these incursions are not worth the benefits. On the strategic level, what could those, uh, what could those alternatives be? I think the only uh, thing that would catch China's attention at this point is India suggesting more resolutely that it is willing to either join or spearhead the creation of some Asian uh, coalition in partnership possibly with the United States uh, that is going to take a much more activist stance, uh, you know, against China to literally balance China's rise in the Indo-Pacific. Now, we all know that India would like to see that balance emerge. And India has taken baby steps in that direction. But India has been very cautious not to go overboard and not to signal that it's part of any uh, anti-China containment strategy. Uh, if India were to shift course on that count, uh, that will certainly uh, wake the Chinese up and give them some reason to rethink uh, the consequences of their current initiatives. But barring that kind of a decision at the strategic level, I just see China as being in a very good place uh, from a Chinese point of view uh, and needing to do nothing other than just continue a dialogue which doesn't really produce any real outcomes. That's right. And we'll come back to the point about uh, India, the United States, and some kind of a countervailing coalition in Asia. But I, I just want to sort of, you know, stay with another aspect of the strategic relationship right? between India and China in this context, which is that, I mean, the trend line so far has been that, you know, India has made significant attempts to repair the bilateral relationship, whatever might have been other kinds of ups and downs in the last five, six years. And there have been a few of them, starting with, you know, Xi Jinping's visit to India, uh, you know, when there was a border standoff and so on, uh, after the Doklam standoff, which again lasted for quite a while, uh, and was quite a bit of, you know, um, you know, seemingly threatening language from the Chinese side at that point of time. Uh, but then you had these informal summits in Wuhan and uh, Mahabalipuram in 2019. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, what was the Chinese reading of India at a strategic point of view? I mean, is it that they feel that India is willing to make attempts to put the relationship on an even keel, even though it might be at a disadvantaged position, and hence it can be pressed along even further to make concessions at the tactical level? Do you think that's a kind of calculus there? I think the Chinese have been deeply suspicious of India. And I think none of the initiatives that you identified, which were India's attempts to sort of maintain an equilibrium in the bilateral relationship, I don't think the Chinese were ever impressed by any of those efforts because they saw that as more evidence of, for want of a better word, Indian duplicity. In other words, they see India as fearful of China 
they see India as wanting to be part of an encirclement strategy of China, but not wanting to own up to it. And they see uh, the Indian efforts at rapprochement, whether it be, you know, the Wuhan summit or other uh, efforts, to be simply India's uh, strategy of masking what are its true objectives. And in the Chinese reading, the true objectives are to become China's peer in Asia, uh, to balance the rise of Chinese power in collaboration with others, but to do so with a certain uh, degree of disguise. And so in that sense, the Indian strategy of walking the middle path was never a stable equilibrium. Uh, because the Chinese have always looked at India, the prospect of India's rise, the possibility that India could one day be a peer, as being an outcome that is simply unacceptable to China. I mean, China wants an Asia that it can dominate singularly and alone. And the Indian strategy was trying to straddle, uh, was trying to straddle the difference. Uh, India, too, wants to balance China, but doesn't want to be seen as balancing China. And I don't think the Chinese were persuaded by what one might call Indian sincerity about, uh, about this effort. And so, you know, at some point, India will have to make some choices. Now, the ideal choice that India could make would be to do internal balancing uh, in a really effective way which is it builds up its own capacities and can stand up to China on its own. Uh, because I don't think that is a realistic prospect in the here and now. I think the Chinese are suspicious that India will always gravitate to others and use other countries as the foil uh, to sort of check China. Uh, but because India doesn't fess up to that and India doesn't do that very transparently, uh, all Indian efforts, including efforts at dialogue with China, are simply seen as a masquerade. And I think that is the one, you know, sort of dis disquieting feeling that Beijing can never quite rid itself of. So in a sense, India is having the worst of all possible worlds in terms of how its options of dealing with China are working out, right? Which is to say that, you know, even if you try to balance them, you don't want to be front and center. But if you try and keep things in some kind of an equilibrium and steady the boat, you're still seen as somehow deviously, uh, in, in a sense, masking what your real intentions are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, I, there are more occasions than I can remember where senior Chinese officials have been very skeptical, uh, have expressed their skepticism uh, about India's efforts at sort of maintaining this equipoise. Uh, they see India simply as trying to balance China, but to do that in covert ways. And given that judgment, uh, I can understand, you know, the reaction they have. I mean, I also understand the Indian effort and why India's sort of straddling that divide and trying to do it with subtlety as opposed to, you know, in a bold, in a bold and clear fashion. But the point is, I don't think this strategy will succeed. Right. And to what extent do you think the United States and 
its relationship with India or its relationship with China is really a, a, a an important factor in what's happening in the border. I understand that, you know, as you quite rightly pointed out, the border standoff has its own dynamic. It's got its history. There are patterns of behavior, uh, some of which might be different, but nevertheless, there is a, you know, intrinsic dynamic to that uh, particular standoff itself. But I'm just wondering whether it is possible to see this in the broader context, uh, both of what you refer to as Chinese kind of larger attempts at salami slicing uh, kind of approaches elsewhere, but also the range of kind of problems in which China seems to be embroiled. I mean, practically, you know, its relations with uh, the United States are, uh, you know, in a very much what seems to me sitting here in India, a downward trajectory. Uh, you know, it's it's in a spat with countries like Australia. So so things don't seem to be going pretty well for China, particularly in what seems to be the emerging pattern of the post-pandemic world. No, you're absolutely right to draw attention to that broader context. Uh, the broader context cannot be neglected, nor can it be avoided. But analytically, I think we need to make what may be a subtle distinction which is the problems on India's border in Ladakh are not caused by the fact that there is an international environment that is at this point more and more hostile to China. Uh, so we need to be careful about draws, drawing the sort of straight causal inference that there is an international context that's hostile and therefore China is reacting to the border. As you uh, underscored, the border has its own logic and China has its own grievances vis-a-vis uh, -vis India, irrespective of what is happening in the international context. But the international context is not helping. The international context is not helping. Uh, the fact that China feels pressed elsewhere, the fact that there is a US-China rivalry that is exploding at about the same time that there is uh, Sino-Indian discordance uh, clearly, there are connections. Now, what one, what weight one assigns to those connections, I think, you know, is a is a proper subject of debate. But the most uh, interesting element of the connection that I find uh, persuasive is China's modus operandi. That whenever China is confronted, it is not likely to engage in all-out warfare against its opposition, certainly not in these times. Rather, it has, you know, used, uh, pulled a page out of a well-used playbook, which is go out and seize marginal gains, gains that lie below the threshold of open warfare, so you don't give the antagonist any excuse to respond with a large-scale use of force. But it's a significant gain nonetheless in that it has changed uh, the status quo and uh, to the antagonist's disadvantage. And so in that sense, China is doing in uh, Ladakh what it has done for a long time in the East and South China Sea. And I think India presumed that it would not have to deal with that salami slicing because of all the efforts it had made at negotiating that equipoise. But that has proven to be uh, that has proven to be, uh, you know, not not accurate, uh, at least as a judgment. So come back to the point of the environment. The, the fact is that China today does feel pressed. It does feel that India is associating more and more with China's adversaries. 
And it does feel that the U.S.-China relationship uh, is rapidly going south and that the U.S. is signaling ever more transparently its support for India over China. And so all these elements do play some role. Uh, but I would just caution uh, uh, against seeing these as sort of determinative considerations in uh, pushing China to do what it has done uh, along the Sino-Indian frontier. That's right. But it is still interesting uh, to watch the Trump administration make these comments while the standoff is happening. And then to that extent, you know, as you're saying, there is a kind of a a certain kind of transparent signaling which the United States has done, which, which also perhaps has rattled the Chinese a little bit. Yeah, but and, and also, you know, if we can just talk a little bit more about how that particular, you know, strategic relationship is shaping up and where India might figure in the United States' kind of uh, calculus, so to speak. I mean, because on the one hand, you know, we've seen there's, there's a recent paper put out by the White House, you know, which, which states in, you know, pretty stark terms what it thinks about the relationship and where it's headed with uh, China. But at the same time, the United States' own relationship with its very close allies like South Korea aren't looking pretty in Asia. So, so how do you think the United States is really going to manage the strategic competition? And where do countries like India really come into the picture? So I would start by first making a distinction between the United States and the Trump administration. I do that only for a methodological reason. Uh, that is, the Trump administration has a very distinctive view of competition with China. It's very transparent, it's very pugnacious, and it's willing to push on all fronts. I'm not sure whether the country as a whole is exactly where the Trump administration is. In other words, if Trump were to depart office in November this year, uh, I'm not sure whether the policy that the administration is currently following vis-a-vis -vis China would survive in its entirety. Now, clearly, there's been a shift in the U.S. and in the attitudes to China. I think there is a shift that now sees China more and more as a competitor rather than just a simple partner. I think that is that much of a transformation is taking place. But whether the pugnacity that characterizes the Trump administration's approach to China will survive, I think that's an open question. Um, so in that sense, uh, I think... Part of India's reluctance in uh, recruiting the U.S. to be forceful on its behalf vis-a-vis -vis China is linked to the uncertainty in New Delhi about whether this current U.S. policy will survive. And the fact that we have not treated, as you point out, our allies with you know, due regard uh, would only, would only uh, sort of strengthen that diffidence in Delhi. Uh, in other words, the U.S. at this stage, uh, you know, I'm, there are many questions about American reliability and American resolution. Uh, what India wants is quiet American support. And I think that this administration has offered and much more. But the calculation here is we don't want to do anything that would put India in a more difficult situation than it already is. So we've said our piece. We have uh, drawn the parallels between what is happening on the Sino-Indian border and elsewhere in the world with respect to Chinese behavior. But I think at this stage in Washington, the councils have prevailed that we should leave India now with the freedom to work its way out if it can.
And I think there is a recognition that we could end up making it harder because if the Chinese see this uh, as an example of the US and India being in cahoots, uh, then a resolution of this problem might become even more difficult. And I think thankfully this administration uh, recognizes that that's a risk and doesn't want to uh, go down that path unless India were to actually call upon it to do so. Interesting. And you earlier made a point, which I think was also quite right, that this is not simply about the United States and India, uh, you know, with China as as the sort of third point of the triangle, but but there is a wider web of relationships in Asia, which includes Australia, Japan, uh, Vietnam, uh, Singapore, and other countries, you know, with whom potentially uh, India should be thinking about some kind of a countervailing coalition. Uh, against, uh, you know, to, to ensure that Chinese are kind of at least broadly sticking to some rules of the road in terms of how things operate in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, but I'm just wondering, you know, what's your judgment on how all of this is going to look in the wake of the pandemic? Uh, because clearly all countries are going to be facing very pressing inward uh, problems in terms of economic, social reconstruction after this very devastating pandemic. Uh, there are also going to be other kinds of challenges about saying, do we want to reduce our economic dependence on China? If so, how do we, you know, rejig the current contours of globalization as it operates within Asia? So uh, are there going to be many other competing priorities, uh, whereas this, the security strategic issues might somewhat recede to the background? And I ask this even with respect to India, you know, because there is an open question about you know, what India will really be able to do in order to walk the talk as far as so many things like the quad, et cetera, are there. Because, you know, you are going to see a period of squeezes in terms of defense spending, which means lesser amount of money available for military transformation, for strategic positioning of India in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, it just seems like the day after the pandemic, things are going to look very different uh, for everyone in the region. I I see what you are trying to get at, and I'm struggling with some of these issues myself, uh, but I don't have a clear or a good answer to any of these questions because uh, the one thing that I think will make the single most important difference is what happens to economic performance in the aftermath of the pandemic. And what happens to economic performance hinges greatly on whether a vaccine or a treatment can be found more or less quickly. Uh, if a vaccine or treatment uh, can be found quickly, then I think one could imagine uh, something like V or shallow U-shaped recoveries in all the major economies. And if that were to be the case, then I think future international politics would approximate something like that of the past. It won't be precisely the same because I think there will be decisions that will have to be made about globalization and value chains and all that stuff. But leave that aside for the moment. I think if you do get a cure or an antidote quickly, you do get the possibilities of economic recovery, uh, rapid economic recovery. And rapid economic recovery gives you options that you don't have if you end up with sort of L-shaped uh, economic recoveries, which are slow and take uh, years, uh, if not if not long. So that is a huge uncertainty, and I don't know the answer to that question. 
But let's keep that aside. I keep that as an important asterisk because to my mind, the character of economic recovery and the pace of economic recovery will determine so much of what the future international sort of system, at least in Asia, looks like. But for the sake of argument, if we sort of bracket that, keep that aside, I would argue that the one thing that's not going to change is skepticism about China uh, and skepticism about Chinese ambitions. Unless, of course, you get such a massive recurrence of the pandemic that it actually destroys China's ability to accumulate national power at the pace that it has over the last several years. If Chinese national power essentially comes apart because the pandemic begins to take a huge toll on China itself, uh, then, of course, the attitude and the perception of China is going to change. But if we rule that out and China continues more or less along its current trajectory, then I would argue that suspicions about Chinese ambitions uh, will remain a permanent feature of the Asian system, even if uh, you have one or more of those scenarios on the economic side coming to pass. So what does that mean? What means uh, what that means in my mind is that there will be a continuing shift towards regional balancing, uh, hopefully with the United States as a more active and uh, sort of responsible and sensible guarantor of security. But even if the U.S. doesn't play that role, I see many of the key regional states essentially increasing cooperation among themselves. Now, what the parallelism between this on the international political side, the slow rise of balancing, possibly evolving into more manifest hard balancing, what the uh, counterpart will be on the economic side, I think also is a question that deserves some scrutiny, but we don't have the answer to yet. And the, uh, the, the reason I don't have the answer to that is because I don't know how powerful a role the state uh, can actually play with respect to reconfiguring future patterns of globalization. Clearly, if left uh, to markets themselves, uh, we know where that will take us. You know, the logic of uh, of the market will take us in some facts towards some facsimile of the world we've known before. But if the state really begins to decisively intervene and break these chains, which are otherwise formed by commercial logic, I don't know where that will go. So we have to see post-pandemic what the responses of key trading states, uh, the United States, Japan, uh, the key countries in Southeast Asia will be. And depending on those decisions made there, we may end up in a world that looks broadly similar to the one we know, or it might be dramatically different. I don't know where we will come out because I don't know what those decisions post-pandemic about globalization are going to be. And early on, you mentioned in passing that you did not believe that internal balancing against China was a viable option for India. And I would say that, you know, India's economic performance certainly over the last, uh, you know, few years hasn't given that kind of optimism that internal balancing alone is going to be a possibility. And it does seem that uh, compared to many other Asian states, in some ways, India's economic recovery post the pandemic uh, will be, you know, slow and halting because we went into the pandemic 
already with something of an economic downturn, right? So, so that's a reality that we just have to uh, face up to, which is that you know uh, our ability, India's ability to also aggregate its national power, is definitely going to be challenging in the post-pandemic context. So, in in this situation, if if you uh, agree that you know as a baseline case that is has some plausibility, how? In your opinion, should Indian policymakers think about managing this relationship with China? And how salient do you think the United States and the relationship between India and the United States is in this particular India-China context as well? So I think there are two. This is a very good question. I share the diagnosis uh, that you've laid out, Srinath, completely. Uh, We want to see successful Indian internal balancing. I mean, that's what the U.S. has been trying to do now for some two decades. But we recognize that as long as India's own economic reforms are halting, we are unlikely to see that internal balancing alone uh, be effective enough. So for Delhi, I think there are two broad uh, approaches. One is to simply say we are never going to be able to internally balance uh, well enough at least in the foreseeable future, meaning, say, the next three to 10 years. And we, therefore, have to consider seriously the possibilities of accommodation with China, which is, even if it is only in passing, India begins to signal to the Chinese that it is willing to live with some kind of Chinese preeminence in Asia and possibly the Indo-Pacific itself. In that sense, India would then play a role analogous to that which is played by many Southeast Asian countries. I can't imagine India with its size, its own aspirations, sort of comfortably falling into that role. But, you know, reality may force India to go in that direction. And that is a possibility. Now, whether the Chinese respond to those overtures of accommodation with some magnanimity, or whether they respond to it with suspicion about India's true intentions and therefore continue to push it remains to be seen. But we have to sort of at least put accommodation on the table as a possibility that uh, that India has in its toolkit. If it doesn't go the route of accommodation, and I just am suspicious that it would go that route only because of you know India's own aspirations for itself, uh, it has to embark on the alternative, which is some form of resistance. And the question then becomes, you know, how is that resistance to be manifested? So India will continue to do uh, internal balancing, however haphazard it is. Uh, But we all know that it probably will not be able to reach the point where it can independently stand up to China. So then the question is, what kind of partnerships does it seek? And to my mind, what it has to do is to do two things with respect to that partnership. It needs to look at uh, institutional architectures or or associations in the Indo-Pacific space and begin to more resolutely sort of participate in them. So the time for excessive subtlety about institutions like the Quad, about the partnership with the U.S., about other institutions like the Indian Ocean, uh, you know, conference and so on and so forth. Uh, India can't afford to be subtle. It has to sort of show its hand. Um, And two, the second part is that I think India needs to be extremely transparent with the Chinese 
which is not give them reason to accuse India of of deceptiveness. And that is to tell the Chinese, you know, transparently as we do, which is we see you as a challenge to our vision of what a stable Asia includes. And we are going to oppose that. But we want to oppose it without ending up in a conflict with you because that conflict is going to serve neither of our interests. But make no mistake, we don't see, uh, we don't see ourselves as being fellow travelers uh, with China. And we are going to increasingly uh, come closer to other countries that share our vision of what a free and open Asia looks like. I think part of the problem that India has in its relationship with China is, you know, it conveys uh, excessive subtlety, which is it kind of keeps telling the Chinese that we are really not part of anything else and certainly not part of anything else that opposes you. Uh, we have an independent foreign policy. Whereas from the point of view of Beijing, the independent foreign policy really seems like a charade. And I don't think India gains too much by persisting in this charade going forward. So I think they, you know, India needs to be as transparent uh, towards uh, China as, as Japan is. Um, and let them know that India is going to follow, of course, its own path. But that path will increasingly take uh, the form of very robust partnerships with others. And this, of course, is not the end of the story because India will have to negotiate the, both the content and the rules of what those other partnerships are. I mean, even if India were to double down on the Quad, for example, as many wanted to do, at the moment, the Quad has no collective responsibilities at all. I mean, at best, it's a forum for consultation and discussion, but there are no collective defense obligations. Uh, there is nothing that India can count on in terms of its partnership in, the, in this forum or any other. So India has to sort of ask itself hard questions about what resistance in terms of enhanced partnerships actually mean uh, for its own self-interest. What forms is it going to take? And, you know, depending on the forms, I think there will be secondary and tertiary negotiations that will become inevitable. But those, to my, to my mind, are the two broad parts that India has. And it has to increasingly do it with a transparency that hitherto has not been evident. On that note, Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you. It's a pleasure, Srinath. Anytime. Take care of yourselves. And you take care too, Ashley. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. 